Last week, I discussed the work of Robert Bly, who just passed away. So enlightening about the final words, the final chapters of Genesis. And today, we have another Gaon, another true sage, Bill Hooks, who recently just passed away. And what I'm going to try to do is invite you into looking at the beginning of Shemot through her eyes. What would it mean to take in the way she's asking us to read and read these first six chapters of Exodus in a way she might invite us into? Because there's something about the way our society is designed that incorporates a structure. And I don't mean in a physical structure. I mean a value structure. I mean a hidden ontological assumption about the way things are. Bell Hooks whose given name was Gloria Jean Watkins, was born in 1952 and, and died just 10 days ago. Her pen name her was Bell Hooks, which she took from her grandmother. But she was someone who really called out whether academia itself is based on a structure of ego and in which those who present schools of thought become famous for their iconoclasm are nevertheless still incorporating a structure of ego in which it's their name and their philosophy and their leadership that's important. So she took the name from her grandmother to honor her maternal grandmother and to use that rather than her own name with her works. There are not enough ways to describe her. She was a professor, a feminist, an essayist, a poet, a social activist. But like what I said is, I think, true, which is more than anything with her over 40 books and her commentaries and articles, she was really a sage. You never knew exactly what she was going to say, and it never fit in exactly into the panel that she was on. The focus of her writing was often said to be intersectionality of race, capitalism, and gender, and what she described as their ability to produce and perpetuate systems of oppression and class domination. I'm going to say a couple of her ideas and then apply them to the Parsha. The first was her focus on patriarchy. Patriarchy not as actual men running things, and if you replace the men with women, then you solve the problem. It's not just that women would make different decisions. It's a patriarchy is a structure of values that underlies the society. It's not a term to describe kinship relationships nor the present state of power dynamics, but the assumption, the value at the heart of our society. And this is the value that success is defined in terms of the vertical dimension of relationships. Success means being above another, is having more power than another, and therefore it's inherently oppressive. To have more money than another is to oppress. To have higher education, to have a higher position. These are what define achievement, and they are all vertical. To have each is to have power over another, to be the protagonist rather than ancillary character in a situation. The patriarchal society is, in her words, phallocentric, by which she meant that to be successful is to fit the model of having power over another, to be in vertical relationship from above. And that the problem with patriarchy is not that it's full of men, it's that it defines success as power. Hooks is perhaps most famous in recent years for critiquing the so-called achievement of Beyonce because, as she said, telling Black people that they too can be rich and powerful and influential and glamorous 
is a definition of beauty that perpetuates the structure of power being defined as being more than another through what that privilege allows and represents. The second concept I want to introduce, and before I get to apply it to the story, is she wrote a lot about film and about characters. And since we have a drama playing out before us, I'd like you to think about who the main character is in today's parasha. Is it Moses? Is it God, the king of Egypt? In film, black women in particular and black people, people of color in general, they don't get to be protagonists. They often don't get names, right? They are the drug dealer. They are the prostitute. They are the maid. And that, therefore, we perpetuate a structure around there is a main character. And everyone else is within the main character story. Everyone is, in a sense, wants to be the protagonist. She developed this idea of the oppositional gaze, that such characters don't get to stare directly at the camera and to share their voice fully. They're always looking away, or they're in the background looking aslight. We think of the, you know, the, the first African-American woman to ever get an Academy nomination from Gone with the Wind. We think of Mammy. She never looks directly in Scarlet and calls her out. She always says, well, I don't know, Miss Scarlet, but I think maybe this, right? She has to look away. And so Bell Hooks encourage an oppositional gaze that a Black person and a Black woman should stand in the camera and stare directly at it, that they should have the freedom to stare directly at another character and not be off. And even when they're not allowed in the movie, that they can bring the oppositional gaze to watching the movie. They use the watching of white cinema and TV to judge it, to bring their own voice to seeing the oppression within it, and therefore understanding it. And there she critiqued often the male black gaze as inadequate, because as she noted in a way controversially, Watching white women in film was the only way black men could ever look at a white woman without getting lynched. But it could produce the effect that they buy in to the pictures of beauty of white women, just as black women can gaze on the white woman and see beauty defined by white women, and therefore participate in the structure and not utilize the oppositional gaze to really understand the injustice that's inherent within it. So character, protagonist, name, who's the character in the story, oppositional gaze. The third idea, intersectionality. Our identities cannot just be divided or hyphenated into the role one is playing at a moment. We Jews are often used to the term Jewish American. We hyphenate our identity. We can be both, or but we're playing with both. What Bell Hooks taught is that you never stop being all of the identities, particularly the identities of oppression that you are suffering. Your identities are intertwined because as she felt as a black feminist, she did not feel fully welcome into white feminism. You know, her heroes were not the heroes, her voice, her her experience of being black, she was asked to limit that in order to be a, a woman. And she asked, why does that have to be limited? Those of intersectionality was very influenced by a lawsuit against General Motors by black women who said that they did not get um, promotions. What the court did is they basically divided the case up into saying, well, we're going to examine whether you didn't get promoted because you are a woman 
and they did not find enough evidence for that. And now we're going to ask whether you did not get promoted because you are black, and they did not find evidence for that, and therefore the black women lost the case. And as Bell Hooks pointed out, I bring a black woman is the combination of those identities. She is oppressed on two levels at the same time. And that's exactly what we want to do in a, in a society of oppression, is separate the identities of oppression, in a sense, set them against each other or limit them in their voices. In blistering and insightful essays, she argued remarkably similar to Robert Bly's critique of men in both his books I discussed last week, that men perpetuate the system of oppression and striving with each other because they do not psychologically flourish into love. Men learn that it is better to engage in vertical power dynamics than it is to love, largely because of the way they were raised. They repeat the dynamics of the domineering conditional love of perhaps an overbearing mother, or repeat the dynamics of a love-hobbled father, as Bly pointed out, because this identification with them, though always doomed to prevent the actual receiving and giving of true love, feels more validating than actually achieving the giving and receiving. Striving, contending with a partner, she was very vocal about abuse that takes place in relationships. Testing the partner is the dynamic. If the woman allows this unequal power dynamic, she's then praised for her understanding, her perseverance, her resilience, her ability to love despite the trouble. She wrote, usually adult males who are unable to make emotional connections with the women they choose to be intimate with are frozen in time, unable to allow themselves to love for fear that the loved one will abandon them. If the first woman they passionately love, the mother, was not true to her bond of love, then how can they trust that their partner will be true to love? Often in their adult relationships, these men act out again and again to test their partner's love. While the rejected adolescent boy imagines that he can no longer receive his mother's love because he is not worthy, as a grown man, he may act out in ways that are unworthy and yet demand of the woman in his life that she offer him unconditional love. This testing does not heal the wound of the past. It merely reenacts it, for ultimately the woman will become weary of being tested and end the relationship, thus reenacting the abandonment. This drama confirms for many men that they cannot put their trust in love. They decide that it is better to put their faith in being powerful, in being dominant. And she wrote, the wounded child inside many males is a boy who, when he first spoke his truths, was silenced by paternal sadism, by a patriarchal world that did not want him to claim his true feelings. The wounded child inside many females is a girl who was taught from early childhood that she must become something other than herself, deny her true feelings in order to attract and please others. When men and women punish each other for truth-telling, we reinforce the notion that lies are better. To be loving, we willingly hear the other's truth. And most important, we affirm the value of truth-telling. Lies may make people feel better, but they do not help them to know true love. So men don't see themselves as capable of being redeemed, she said. They don't want to be saved. They are not worthy of it. And women do the same thing in the oppressive structure. So the final idea, and then we'll apply briefly the parsha, is I was always struck by what bell hooks meant by, by having your voice, 
by being fully able to be present to love, which she viewed as the ability to give the other the possibility of change, the possibility of growth, and to love yourself enough to feel full in your truth and that you are always changing, that you compare yourself not to the those in power of today, but only to the person that you were yesterday. And she saw herself struggle with reclaiming her voice. She said that when she grew up, black women were allowed to get straight A's, but they were not allowed to be intellectuals. They should get straight A's and become school teachers. Only black men could become intellectuals. Black women needed to be inferior in their manner of speech, and they could not state directly They could not stare directly and say what is real. And even in the company of white women, their experience as black feminists had to take a backseat to the larger cause. And so now let's just skip around a little bit in the Parsha to think about her notions. Everything with Moses is defined in the beginning of the Parsha as a patriarchy based on vertical relationships. The last line in chapter one, then Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. The Talmud in Masachet Sanhedrin asks, why let the girls live? I mean, after all, girls can procreate. And if so, if the issue was procreation, the girls should have been included. And the Talmud answers, as it does in Tractate Sota, quoted by Rashi, Pharaoh only felt threatened by boys. And in fact, the, when he says, every boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile, Rashi suggests he's not just talking about Hebrew boys. He's talking about the Egyptian boys too. Every boy that is born, you should drown. He's threatened by men. He sees men as competition for taking his seat as he took another man's seat. In chapter two, it says, sometime after that, when Moses had grown up, when he becomes bar mitzvah age, he went out to his brothers, El Achav, and witnessed their labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers, one of his kinfolk. So the world of men, he's been raised in this cocoon of women. He goes out and what does he see? He sees strife with one another, one man against another based upon the inequality and balance of a power relationship, and one that is taken for granted. And we wonder about his intersectionality. The rabbis have asked when it says that he went out to see his brothers, who are his brothers? Um, I think it was Sephorno, it may have been Rashbaum, suggests that he may have been thinking about the Egyptians being raised as an adoptee or protected uh, Hebrew in the palace, Maybe he saw he was going out to see his brothers, the Egyptians. After all, he had the freedom of movement. He had the freedom of gaze that in Israel, a Hebrew would not have had, a slave would not have had. Or is he going out to see his brothers, the Hebrews, because he knows he's a Hebrew. And uh, so is he seeing how the Hebrews are being treated? So he has an intersectional identity of both. And in a way, he's rejected by both. He buys into the power structure, trying to redress injustice through vengeance. So he participates in the patriarchal structure of striving, fighting, and dominance. He kills the Egyptian and buries him. This is the transition to the world of men, the world of vertical relationship. And here, the power of the role of the gaze. 
And the next day when he went out, he saw two Hebrews fighting. So he said to the offender, why do you strike your fellow? He retorted, who made you chief and ruler over us? To gaze and to witness at the injustices, so you now want to become the oppressor. You are putting yourself above us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was frightened and thought, then the matter is known. He uses, the Hebrew uses his power over Moses of tattletale um, to gain power over him. And Moses flees. It's the vertical relationship again. And two verses later, he's already in Midian. And the boy shepherds are being masters to the seven daughters of Yitro, who are equally shepherds. They're exerting their dominance. But this time, Moses does not fight them. He doesn't participate in the patriarchy in Hook's sense. The one who oppresses is the one in power. Rather, he just drives them off, whatever that means. And then he waters the sister's flock. He takes the role of service of a lower one. One, as Hooks would say, a one of the actually equal level. Sephorno adds, Moses did not avenge the wronged party. Rather, he redressed the injustice. In other words, he's not participating in justice as the reversing of the power dynamic. A very, to me, important message for today of making the oppressed oppressor now the oppressed. But now he's changing the dynamic. By watering the flock, he's taking a feminine role an equal role, a horizontal role, that of Rivka watering the master's flock. As we, when his wife bears a son, he names him Gershom, a stranger there, for I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And we wonder of those of intersectional oppressed identities in America, how they have felt being strangers in a foreign land, how she herself, Bell Hooks, felt a stranger in the land of white feminism. And then they get to the burning bush, and the mission. Moses resists God's call to go and free the Israelites, the Hebrews. It says, you will try, but he will not let you go. Yet I know that the king of Egypt will let you go only because of a Yad Chazakah. The king of Egypt will only understand a greater might, a Yad Chazakah. For those who understand some of the implications of what Bell Hooks called phallocentrism, Yad Chazakah could also be understood um, as phallocentrism, as the strength of the arm, the strength of the male arm. So Pharaoh will only understand the power dynamic. God will have the bigger Yad Chazakah. And in verse 10, but Moses said to Adonai, please, O Lord, I've never been a man of words, either in times past or now that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. To me, I wonder about bell hooks and what it means to understand that one's voice can speak the truth and is worthy and her own early hesitance to speak her own truth. I mean, even going to Stanford and, uh, and then getting her PhD at UC Santa Cruz, that does she have a right to speak as a black intellectual? Does she have a right to speak against feminism uh, if, if, if that's her truth? Does she have a right to stand up? As, as I said, I saw her in celebration of the importance of black liberation intellectuals and say, that's not my truth. And I don't agree with what you just said. How does Moses resist actually finding his voice and expressing his truth, a truth of the intersectional identities? And we think of the notion of protagonist and oppositional gaze. 
who has a name? Moses' parents are just, there was some Levite, and there was this other Levite, and they don't get names. Paro doesn't get a name. Pharaoh doesn't get a name. Miriam doesn't initially get a name. The maidservants who co-raise Moses, they don't get names. Who is the protagonist? And is the protagonist Moshe, or is it God? Isn't that her critique, in a way, of the assumption of who gets to be the protagonist itself that she was trying to question is what the Torah is calling us to hear, to say that can we be characters in God's story rather than having to everyone else, including God, be a character in our own? Do we have to have the name or can we have the voice? And if I were to continue this after services and sit around with you, I would then look at the contest coming up between Pharaoh and between Moses or between Pharaoh and God. Is it a fellow-centric contest where, I'm sorry, but God and Moses are buying into the structure of who has the stronger yacht, who can beat up the other person? Is it a continuation of patriarchy in that way? Or could it be viewed as if the solution, as Bell Hook said, is a kind of love that someone else can change, that if you can speak truth, your own truth, your intersectional truth, then in the process, allow the other to have the possibility of change, then that is love. So could the 10 plagues be viewed as opportunity after opportunity for Pharaoh to change instead of his heart being hardened? Or is it instead just a contest of patriarchy? I close with a final quote from Bell Hooks. People have to feel worthy of being redeemed in order to accept and to express love. She wrote, visionary feminism is a wise and loving politics. It is rooted in the love of male and female being, refusing to privilege one over the other. The soul of feminist politics is the commitment to ending patriarchal domination of women and men and of girls and boys. Love cannot exist in any relationship that is based on domination and coercion. Males cannot love themselves in patriarchal culture if their very self-definition relies on submission to patriarchal rules. When men embrace feminist thinking and practice, which emphasize the value of mutual growth and self-actualization in all relationships, their emotional well-being will be enhanced. A genuine feminist politics always brings us from bondage to freedom, from lovelessness to loving.